up in New South Wales about their impending departure and hinted at some real dissatisfaction about how harness racing was tracking along locally. And uh, and Simone and Dan, Shane Tritton's been kind enough to join us just to explore this situation a little bit more. How are you, Shane? G'day, mate. How are you going? Good. Shane, a um, bit of a, a surprise to everyone, um, but you made a, a really important announcement. And, and, you know, if it's coming from a personal uh, a theme when someone has to shift to go overseas to continue on with their business, it's a big, big decision that has to be made. And you've made one during the week with, uh, with Lauren that you're going to be calling America home shortly. Yeah, look, it's, um, it's been obviously very tough um making that call you know we've got a lot of reasons to stay and um probably fewer reasons to go but um you know we are concerned with our future and the future of this sport and look we we tried everything to stay and we we would have loved to stay but you know i think um we look at our our future and we think that um you know, look we're in a very fortunate position that we can go um you know not everyone can just do that so um we're certainly excited and yeah, now that we can sort of relieve a little bit that we've made the decision and we can just now work towards uh, getting it all finalised. Shane, the logistics of uh, moving horses in an operation like that over to America sounds horrendous. I remember moving 30 greyhounds from Warrnambool to Lara and that was um, stressful enough. But is it a, do you think when you get over there, will you just move seamlessly into um, the operation again or is it quite different in America how you would train and prepare your horses? Where are you going in uh, America first too? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're heading to a um, obviously the state of New York is is uh, in a in a city called Pine Bush. Is uh, it's where my dad's located. Uh, Peter Tritton, he's been training there for probably close to twenty years now. So um, I'm very fortunate that me and Lauren can go there and um, sort of go under the guidance uh, of my dad just to sort of show me the ropes, as you would speak, and um, sort of let me know the do's and don'ts and um, how the differences in training from here to there. So. Uh, that's that's where we're going. It's about an hour north of um, of Yonkers in the Meadowlands, so uh, it's it's pretty centralised and um, it's a really good training establishment there. So we've already got a barn sorted there, and um, yeah, so it's it's fairly simple that way. It's just a matter of um, you know sorting out the horses that we're going to take, and you know there might even be a few more sort of jump on the the bandwagon when we go, and that way we can get there with a with a smallish sort of team, but something that we can focus on and try and uh, try and break into their racing. We always grew up thinking that the American horses were vastly superior and Niatros, remember all those ones of the, the greats of the past and that our horses were slower by comparison, but with uh, AI and all sorts of things, that, that there's been a bit of an evening up. Are you confident that you can take horses from here that will become competitive there? Oh, look, I'm supremely confident that uh, just about any horse here that can compete at the metro level will go to America and, and make money. There's no doubt on that. It's the, due to their handicapping system and the and the way that they you know keep horses competitive for a very long period of time. So there's, there's little doubt in my mind that the horses will be competitive. Um, it's just depending on what level. And you know I think it's it's getting more and more obvious that the Aussie horses are going there and doing such a good job. And um, you know my dad's been doing it for you know like I said 20 years mainly just training New Zealand and Australian horses. So, um, you know, we've got a lot of confidence that um, we're going to have the right system and, you know, as long as we're taking horses that, you know, have proven that they're, they're competitive here, then, um, you know, I've, I think with them an angle style of racing, it kind of gives us a good lead in and hopefully, um, you know, with the, with the way that you can do treatments over there with Lasix and Butte and a few other sort of key things, you can 
you can prolong the horse's life a bit more, their racing life, that is, anyway. The uh, exporting of uh, horses from Australia and New Zealand to America has really peaked again recently, Shane. There's been um, plain uh, loads of horses been going across in the last couple of months. So uh, with that in mind and the success of uh, ex-Australasian horses, do you think that you might be able to pick up some um, local owners from, from the US? Oh, look... Um that's what we're that's what we're hoping to do. Um, look, it's all obviously we're going to be the new people, so we'll be obviously watched pretty critically. And you know, whatever success we have early is probably going to determine how how quickly we can take off. But you know, I'd love to be able to keep the current owners that we've got. You know, they're they're good enough to go with me, and if we can go there and be successful and make them a bit of money, then I've got no doubt we'll be looking for some more horses from here to to pick up and bring over. And um, you know, we'd love to to have a few of the owners here sort of, you know, we want to keep bringing the money back to Australia if we can. So if um, if people can send their horses with us, then, um, you know, any any money they make comes back to you. So it's, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's very exciting and it's, there's a lot of um, a lot of turning joints and, and moving parts, but we, uh, we're, we're going in the right direction anyway. Shane, you mentioned at the start that the reasons to stay were probably there were more reasons to stay than go, but the reasons to go are the ones that are forcing the move. What are the, the key frustrations here? I, I was talking earlier about the uh, the significance of a national tote, if it ever comes about, and how Dale Monteith was telling me that it's almost make or break for harness racing, the requirement of a national tote, and that's just one aspect of funding. But for you and Lauren, what are the, the key frustrations that you're, you're feeling as you're about to leave? Uh, look, mate, um, fairly simple. Um, you know, we've been doing this, for, uh, you know, I've been a trainer now for over 10 years and, you know, we've been lucky enough to be successful and one of the leading trainers for the last probably five years and, um, you know, we, we've realised that we probably can't have much more success on average than we're currently having and we're still struggling to, to financially create a, a future for our family and as much as we're not whinging, we, we're very happy that we've had success and we're very fortunate but, you know, we, we can't sustain the level of success forever and you know that you've only got to look at people of the past you know they've been leading trainers and won group ones and you know through fortune or unfortune they they don't keep doing that and i don't think the industry has solved the problem of keeping people financial as a trainer uh, or a driver for that matter if they're not being like a leading successful trainer so is there more to it than simply prize money for the industry to make sure its participants are not eating the pain off the wall? Is it not as simple as, as prize money variations? Look, I think prize money is a huge part of it and we definitely don't race for enough to go around. That's, that's a massive problem. But I explain this to the to powers to be and if, if let's say harness racing hit the, the lottery and we doubled prize money across the country, it wouldn't actually help probably 80% of the trainers. And that's, that's a very scary thought when we all we worry about is increasing prize money because... When you consider where a trainer actually makes money from, they can only increase their fees or make more money if they're running in the top three all the time. So if you're one of those trainers that, you know, you've got a team of 10 horses, but you struggle to win a lot of races, but you want to stay in the sport, it's almost impossible to make any money and, and you're forced out of it. So, What's the solution to that, though? What's the model that would make that better? Well, look, I, I've been very voiceful in trying to get a trainer's remuneration. I know people are against it because it means that we're cutting the pie up more ways, but the fact of the matter is we're going to lose probably 60, 70% of our training base if they can't 
find a way to make trainers more financially stable. And, you know, it's not as simple as just putting your fees up because if you're not getting the success, then the horses will go somewhere else. So I think if they can come up with some sort of trainer's remuneration, same as they do with the drivers, so you get paid to turn up. So, you know, something like the trainer gets 1%, the driver gets 1%, and the owner gets 1%, then, you know, they might be... People think that's diluting the quality, but you have to be able to earn a minimum wage in this industry for, to entice people to do it. And that's, that hasn't happened for so long. And I think with the cost of living going up and the cost of owning horses going up, it's breaking people. And look, and we're not saying we're in that position, but one day we might be. And and that's why we're, we're trying something different. Um, look, America is, is, is no promises of being any better. We're, we're confident that we're going to do well and hopefully we can find a financial future, but it's, um, we just know that if we stay here, unless, unless things change, it's, uh, one day or another we're going to be probably struggling. Shane, in the Greyhounds, um, many years ago, you used to get unplaced money, and it might have been $40, I think, at Sandown in the city, but then that was revised and changed, and um, we get a starter's fee, so you, any track you go to, you get $70 plus $10 per runner, which actually, it might only cover your fuel for getting to the track that night, it might only cover your, um, you know, paying your catches and having meals, but it sounds like harness racing perhaps needs something like that that just pays for covers a few basic costs getting to the track because i can't imagine having horses in work just the feed bill alone and not to mention vet and farrier it just must be crippling well it's it, and it's people get misconstrued with what we try to ask for see people think and a lot of trainers think this way which is even sadder that we're trying to take the money off the owners we're not we want prize money to go up owners to raise for more money we definitely need that but Unfortunately, the reality is that most owners don't rely on their income from harness racing to survive. They, they use it as their, their enjoyment, as a bit of a hobby. You know, if they're lucky enough to make money, then they're happy. But reality is a lot of owners don't make money. They do this for fun in any sport. That's the same as thoroughbreds, greyhounds, a lot. Where the trainers and the drivers who do this without any other income they need to be guaranteed that they're actually not going to go broke next month. I, I, just, just on that, I reckon you've honed in on a really interesting point about what motivates owners, and I, I think you've nailed it too. And uh, all this focus on re- returns to owners, there's not one person I know that has a share in a syndicate of a horse that's doing it because they think they might get uh, a financial remuneration out of it. They... Correct. And that's one thing that, that, that we, I've learned in the last couple of years. That we've gone from from winning more races to making more money. We changed to how we did things so that we could stay financially sound and the owners were probably less happy. They would prefer to be winning more often and winning less money because realistically, most owners aren't relying on the money to, to support their life. And, and look, don't get me wrong, it's hugely important that owners can make money. That, 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 that's to keep everything moving and you have to have the promise that you may make money and you may get the jackpot horse. But if the trainers can't afford to soundly... And it's, it's not me. I'm, if people miss this, it's not me and Lauren or the Luke McCarthy's or the Morris's that are in this position. It's everyone that's past the top 20 trainers that are struggling. And there's 3,000 trainers in this country. And if we're only worrying about 30 of them and forgetting about the other 2,900, like them people are not making enough money to support their business. And they're obviously supplementing it somewhere else 
that they can't be professional trainers. And they're the fundamental ones, aren't they? Because the part-timers, Shane, in harness racing is harness racing. If we took the part-timers away, like you said, there'd be one horse trained by McCarthy, one by Tritt and one by Morris, and that'd pretty much be it, wouldn't it? And if, if they made it so that people could actually make money training, these guys that are part-time might become full-time. But that, that you're right. That one of the great myths, and I think this has exposed it, is that owner participation is increased if prize money goes up. Because I know that the only way I'm going to have a share in a horse isn't anything to do with prize money. It's got to do with my income. It's got nothing to do with the 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 reward I get for that horse, which I know is a is an indulgence. I'm only going to race a horse if I can afford it, not if the prize money's big. It. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I think we've stepped away from from looking at what this industry needs to be moving forward. Because look, we've had a lot of discussions, and, and this is part of why I've been very disappointed in how everything's come about. Is if you look at the age of the participants in harness racing. I think 70-something percent are over the age of 45. So if you, if you fast forward 15 years, then there's a chance that 70% of the participants are going to be 60 years or older and retired. So unless they're making it so that these people can stay financially sound as a trainer or a driver, then who's going to entice people to come into the sport? Do we know enough about the US model to know if you're wandering into a better situation? Oh, look, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have been had my dad there for the last 20 years. And, look, we're not going to go there and train 40 or 50 horses. We're going to go there and train 15, and we're going to make sure that the 15 that we've got are financially capable of making money. So it's it's very different the way we're going to do things, and, and it's sort of mirroring exactly what my dad's done. So we're kind of stepping away from having the stable that I've got here to to try and to have a more of a boutique stable and, and make sure that we can actually make money. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm not sure that there's a grand solution that they can fix Australian racing because it's, a, it's an awesome sport and we've loved it and it's created who we are. But if you, if you sit down and just say, well, look, I just need to make sure I make some money, well, you know, I'm sure even like the McCarthys, they'd turn around and tell you that if they didn't have the slip and slides, the Be Good Johnnies, the, the Flirtal Eels that they own themselves, they didn't create that money from training. They created it from owning a horse that's won a million dollars. And and it's it's if if I had a horse here that I owned that had just won a million dollars, I wouldn't be going anywhere either. So Shane, is it about reward for effort? I mean, I think everything in life comes down to it. And I know that the harness racing people probably work harder than any other person in any other code because it just takes so long to and get they're more dedicated done. and more passionate. And, and that's and travel pretty further. obvious. Yeah. And travel for the far flung well, parts I mean, of states and so on. I don't think there's one person harness racing that'll say they needed to be paid more for how much they do. They, I think we all do it just for the love of it. We just mm. we just need to make sure that we can pay a house off and buy a car and support our family. And that's that's really, you know, we don't expect there to be some magical solution so that we can all be driving around in new cars and actually have a decent wage. We actually just don't want to be knocking on the door of being in debt every month. And that that's really where it's at and I know that sounds daunting but if you pulled apart every training establishment in this country there would be probably less than five percent that actually make money from training horses and and that's it's it's almost you know frightening that's damning isn't it Shane there's one uh, just quickly one more um, point I wanted to make just recently you came down um, to Victoria to Bendigo to the Alabar show series you're very passionate about the rehoming of standard breeds too aren't you 
Yeah, well, look, that's um, oh, look, I am passionate about it, but that's definitely Lauren's uh, Lauren's passion. She, I've, I've sort of followed her into that, and look, she's she's done more for for standard breds than than anyone I know. She takes just about every horse that anyone wants retired. She takes it on herself. We look after it, and then she finds a home for it. Um, and look, I think last year we went to the Royal Show. The standard breds were there for the first time, and I think there might have been twenty standard breds there, and We'd either rehomed or trained, you know, almost half of them. So um, she certainly, it's really her passion, and I was lucky enough to be asked to go along and and just sort of agree with her. So it's, um, it was a it was a really good experience, and um, it's really good to see that that standard bred, you know, do get well looked after after they retire. And I'm sure I'm sure there'll be more of it. And make nice show horses too, some of them. Well, look, there's a couple there that um, I think they. I don't know if it's a good compliment or not, but a lot of them say, "Gee, that horse could could match it against the standard uh, the thoroughbreds. He doesn't even look like a standard bred." No, I, I don't know if that's an insult or not. But I've seen plenty of ugly uh, thoroughbreds. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, you mentioned <laughs> Fleur de Lille before, uh, Shane. I reckon Fleur de Lille epitomises the the best looking standard bred I've ever seen in my life. Um, so you know there are quite a few around. Village Kid was another one that was so athletic. So and Christian Cullen, Christian quite Cullen obviously, one, he's another one that stood out. Um, so they're there. Tell me, um, I I didn't get to check, but it, uh, there was a, a a young Panella that won a the Inter Dominion Pony Trot at uh, Melton last year. It was the fastest pony trotter I have ever seen in my life, and I and I'm not kidding to everyone here. It would go around and win some of the ROs and COs. Do you remember that night? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was definitely there, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a funny horse. Uh, that horse came to us, and we got it for Lauren's sister, and Lauren sort of had to train it for a while because it was bloody that fast and a little bit silly, and it took a while to settle down. But um, yeah, then Grace got hold of it, and uh, yeah, she she just about won everything. So uh, it's a it's an amazing breed, and it's good to you know the young kids get to get to showcase their abilities as well. All right, we'll pack that pony in the suitcase and take it to the United States. So, hey, Shane, it's been enlightening for, for me to chat to you this morning. It's a shame you're leaving because you kind of sound like one of those guys who could be part of the solution locally because you well, seem to have a handle on the issue. Mate, we've definitely tried to be. This has been a two-year battle to uh, to try and get something changed. So if anyone thinks that me and Lauren are just up and leaving because it's too hard, is crazy. We've been fighting this battle for two years to try and get things to be changed, and right now nothing's changed. So we had just had to make a call. When, when are you leaving, Shane? Uh, the plan is to leave in May. So we've got a few feature race carnivals to get through and a few ducks to get put in a row. So there's a lot to deal with. But um, yeah, May May's definitely the the last ETA that we'll we'll give out. All right. Well, good on you for jolting yourself out of out of a situation that you thought wasn't working out and and best of luck in the United States and as I said uh, it's a shame people haven't been listening to you in the last couple of years but hopefully they will uh, your words will echo uh, in the next year or so well mate if, if, if we can leave and make things a little bit better because of the shock that we're leaving look I would be surprised if there's not more that go you know so it's, I just hope that this power to be can find a solution and get everyone to you know live a comfortable life Terrific. Good on you, Shane, and good luck. Towards you. Thanks, mate.